I'm just kidding. That was the only one I heard. But um, if you would, open your Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. I'm glad that you're here tonight. We're going to um, look through the Old Testament as we've been doing on Sunday mornings. But uh, I know it's been a while since we've looked at the book of Haggai. And uh, it was back in 2017, I think, when I either finished or first started preaching it, uh, through it. So that was about five years ago. So some of you that have been attending since then um, may not have heard this book preached, and so I thought uh, when given the opportunity on Wednesday nights, we'll spend a little bit of time there. Once you find your place in Scripture, Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, please stand to your feet as we read God's Word. Scripture says this, In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of armies says this, These people say, The time has not yet come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of armies says this, Think about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink, but never have enough to be happy. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wage into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of armies says this, think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So, on your account... The skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and all that your hands produce. Let me pray one more time, brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, illuminate your word for us, that we would understand its meaning, that we would understand what... You have said so long ago through your prophet and that we might be able to rightly and properly interpret it and then rightly and properly apply it to our lives so that we might be the people that you've called us to be, fully loving you and fully caring about the lost in this world as we love each other as well. We pray your blessing upon our time together in your word. I pray that you would stir our hearts to be good listeners and stir our hearts to be good obeyers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. The sermon is titled, When God's Priorities Are Not Your Own. And if you look on the screen, there should be a QR code. If you want tonight's outline, you can take out your phone and the camera. You can scan the screen, and it will pull up the complete outline that I'll be preaching through. In fact, um, in all the notes that are on uh, the slides, that'll all be in um, the, uh, the document that I created. Okay, And uh, you'll be able to keep that, if you want, for further study or just a reminder of what we talked about tonight, okay? That way you don't have to take copious notes. You can just follow along and listen with your ears and listen with your heart and just tune into what God has to say, and then you'll have the notes for you later, okay? I pulled this introduction a while ago from a little devotional, and it says this. It says, That great missionary to India, William Carey, became deeply concerned about the attitude of his son, Felix. The young man, a professing Christian, had promised to become a missionary, but he broke his vow when he was appointed ambassador to Burma. Carey requested prayer for him. He said, pray for Felix. He has degenerated into an ambassador of the British government when he should be serving the king of kings. Now, technically, there's nothing wrong with being an ambassador uh, to another country for your own country. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with most professions that we have in this world. But there is oftentimes a reality check that needs to be done in each person's heart to always assure that one's priorities are really on track with God's priorities. 
At times, our priorities can be wrong. We might stop praying or not pray as much. We might not read scripture like we ought to. We might not attend Bible studies with other believers in Christ in our church. We might stop sharing the gospel. We might stop attending worship services with the body of Christ. There are times when people quit serving. We sometimes quit using our spiritual abilities and natural abilities to build up the church. We sometimes stop giving financially to support the gospel. And we place all these important things. There are times when all of us have done that, where we place all these important things on the back burner of our lives, and we put, um, I'm sorry, we put all these things on the back burner, and we put less important things at the very front and priority of our lives, and this dishonors God. We know what's important as God's people. If we've been around the scripture long enough and around good teaching long enough, we know what's important, and we do know what we're supposed to do as God's people. But many times, we believe the lies of the world. We deceive ourselves, and the lies of Satan come into our mind, and our priorities are misaligned. And sometimes when that happens, the discipline of God comes upon our lives to correct us and get us back in tune with what he is doing. The New Testament makes it clear that God disciplines the ones that he loves, the ones that sin that he has called into his family. In the Old Testament, such is the case with the Israelites in the book of Haggai. Haggai is a small book. It's a small prophecy. It's only two chapters. But Haggai addresses a people whose kingdom priorities have become out of focus. Worldly priorities have become more important to them. And church, if you're honest with yourselves, and if I am with myself, that's all of us at one time or another as we walk with God. We all fall short of being perfectly committed to God and his priorities. And so as we take a walk through Haggai, hopefully you'll see a couple things. Hopefully you'll see why God was displeased with the Israelites and how they stalled in rebuilding the temple You definitely don't want to miss this historical message to the Israelites and how they did this. But you'll also want to see what all this has to do with Jesus Christ because it does relate to him as well. And also you'll want to see why God's priorities must be your priorities. Hopefully you'll see what you need to do to correct things in your life to make proper priorities first place. And ultimately, I believe and I know that God will bless you and honor you as you walk eternally with him, as you walk faithfully with him, according to his kingdom ways and his kingdom purposes. Now, most people don't know the book of Haggai and have never been taught through it. It may have been referenced here or there. It may have been referenced improperly. And so to help you understand the book of Haggai in its larger context, I'm going to do a speed run through the Old Testament. That would be great. Thank you, brother. I'm going to do a speed run through the Old Testament. Now, for those of you that uh, are new to our church, uh, I am infamous for doing that, all right? Uh, I'm not just famous for it, but I am infamous for doing this, okay? There's that Three Amigos reference. All right. Some of you don't know that, all right? So I am more famous, infamous, for running through the Old Testament to help people see where we're at. And I do this because I want you to better understand the Old Testament narrative and story and all that's in it so that when you come to it or somebody else is teaching from it, you're able to ascertain the meaning of Scripture a lot quicker because you understand the big picture story. And so I want to take you through that. Again, it's in the outline that I provided for you, but I'm going to run through it and help you get that here right now, okay? Now, the big picture story of Scripture. Haggai has its context, and it starts with creation, even though it's thousands of years later. Haggai starts with the story of Jesus Christ, right? Not technically in the book, but in its context. The story of creation starts with mankind being created very good in God's likeness. Our ultimate purpose in life, because of what God did in creating us, is to enjoy God and to display his likeness, to be with him and enjoy him and and act like him in the way that we have dominion in this world. Well, soon after creation and everything good, we come to the fall where Adam and Eve sinned, and through Adam's disobedience, he brought sin to all of humanity and death to all of humanity and judgment to all of humanity because he did not listen to the word of the God and abstaining from the fruit that he was told to abstain from. Okay, So all of creation is cursed, all of humanity is cursed and damned, and it's at that point that God promises to send a Savior into the world and rescue fallen creation and fallen humanity in order to restore some of us back to God 
on a new creation where we can live with God in fellowship, enjoying him and being like him, like he originally intended before Adam and Eve brought sin into this world. So that's what the Savior is going to come and do. We're not told all of that in Genesis chapter 3, but we are led to believe that there is one who is coming to destroy what Satan brought into this world and through Adam's disobedience. Now, the rest of the Old Testament is a story of how God uses certain individuals in a peculiar nation to bring forth this plan of, of the awaited Savior or Messiah. Humanity, then in this uh, scriptural story in Genesis, uh, we see that humanity comes very wicked, Okay, so wicked that God decides to destroy the entire human race. He decides to reset everything, and he destroys the world with a flood, making this flood an example of both salvation and judgment. Okay, because he saved a man and his family, but then he God destroyed everybody else, and so this becomes a picture to us and a reminder that God ultimately will bring a final salvation to the world and ultimate judgment as well, not one of water but one of fire. Okay, But through this flood, God keeps this one man alive and his family. This man we all know, is, his name is Noah. And Noah's dad even thought that he might even be the one to bring relief to creation, that he might be this Messiah, this awaited Savior. But Noah was not. Noah eventually has a descendant. This guy's name is Abraham. He's a huge figure in the Old Testament and uh, in, the book of, uh, in the book of Genesis and referenced all throughout it. God selects this man to start a new nation. He called this man out of sin, and he's going to start a new nation through him. And it's through these people that the Savior would one day come. And to Abraham, God makes this amazing promise, this amazing covenant. And it's threefold in nature. It has three parts to it. There's a promise of land. There's a promise of seed and a promise of blessing. And they're all tied into Jesus Christ. Abraham, eventually, he has a son named Isaac. Then he has a grandson named Jacob. Jacob is later given the name Israel by God. Israel should sound very familiar to you if you know anything about the Old Testament. It's the primary nation that is featured in there that God is going to use to bring the Savior into the world. Okay? So the promises that were made to Abraham, they're passed down to Isaac, passed down to Jacob, whose name is now Israel. Israel has 12 sons. And from those 12 sons, uh, give or take a, with a few variances, there are 12 tribes or 12 states, if you want to think of it like that, that arise. And so you can see that the promise to, that God made to Abraham is starting to come to life, that there's a new nation blossoming. This seed blessing of having a great nation is coming to life. And uh, Israel's family, they end, end up going down to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. They go down to Egypt where they find one of their brothers that they betrayed is down there, and he's leading uh, Egypt right next to the main leader, Pharaoh. But they find protect, protection down there and food. But eventually, this small family of Israel finds themselves enslaved to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians are cruel, and they're not God-fearing. They worship idols. They, they, they're, they're harsh on the, on, on the uh, Israelites. During their enslavement, though, they grow to several million people because this was a several hundred year period in which they were under the Egyptian influence. But under the leadership of a man named Moses, which should sound familiar to you, God uses Moses to pummel and punish and bring judgment upon the Egyptians, and the Israelites are freed. With them being freed now, they are out in the wilderness worshiping God and loving God, but they're also complaining and not happy that things aren't the way that they would like them to be, and they even long to go back to Egypt, which is really foolish. But um, they're in the promised land. They're, they're waiting to be blessed by God. They're waiting for this land, right? He's fulfilling the seed blessing. A lot of people are, are being in this nation now, and they're waiting for the land blessing to come about, Okay? This land blessing would foreshadow the new creation, this land of milk and honey, this land of rest, this land of blessing. It was there to point forward ultimately to the new creation that will replace this fallen creation that, uh, that we are in now, which has taken, we're in now, which has taken place after the beautiful creation that God made in the beginning of Genesis. And so... It's all wrapped around this notion of Christ coming in to fix things and restore things, okay? Even the, the land blessings and things like that. And so um, while they're in the wilderness, though, God decides to make another promise, a huge promise in Scripture. This is called the Mosaic Covenant. We would call it the Old Testament, 
okay? The Sinaitic co- uh, covenant, because it was made at Mount Sinai. Now, all one and the same. This promise had a lot of things in it, okay? And it, you read about that all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you, you see it in books like Leviticus and, and uh, Deuteronomy, and it's just, it's a lot, so we can't cover it, all right? All, but part of it says, as long as they remain faithful to God in obedience, and they loved him and they worshiped him and adored him, that they would be blessed and be prosperous. And they would be, uh, I mean, everything would go right for them in their crops. There would be no drought. There would be no locusts. Their, their animals would produce plenty of, um, uh, I almost said, uh, yeah, flock, and, and whatever animal. I'm not a farmer, but whatever animals produce, other animals, okay? And their trees would produce great. They would go grape, awesome grapes. And it's just a wonderful promise. You love me, I'll take care of you. When they break covenant, God promised hardship. And he promised that I'm going to remove you from the land that I gave you as a punishment. And all this is there to remind Israel and the world that to be in covenant with God is a blessing. And to be outside of covenant with God is judgment and damnation and and bad stuff. Ultimately pointing to the eternal judgment of hell and the eternal salvation that we have with God in the new creation. In this covenant, God set up a whole way of life, a whole worship system, there was priests, there were sacrifices, special religious days, and they all are meant to teach the world about God and his holiness and how we've been separated from him and how he wants to come dwell with us and how we can be restored to God through a perfect sacrifice that's offered up to God through a priesthood. And it just goes on and on and on, okay? Teaches us about forgiveness and restoration. And one of the things that God commanded in his law was this thing called a tabernacle. It is a movable tent, Right? Later, it would become a physical building called the temple. Okay? But it was in this special tent that, uh, that priests would go into, and the temple as well, that they would go into and offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel to show how the people could be uh, reconciled to God, but also how God is rightly worshipped. Okay? So that takes place in the wilderness. Um, after Moses dies, his right-hand man, Joshua, great name, I love it, all right? The guy becomes the leader of Israel. He's a military commander, and he starts to take possession by, at God's command. He starts to take possession of the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Israel. Okay? So we see the land conquest in the Old Testament. He's leading them in victory after victory, and there's some hiccups along the way, of course, because nobody ever does things absolutely 100% the way God wants. There's rebels in the way. Um, but eventually Joshua passes away. A string of new leaders appear over a few hundred year period. This new group of leaders is called judges. They're not judges like a person that wears a black robe and rules from a bench with a, a mallet uh, or a gavel. They are just leaders in uh, Israel's time that God would raise up to deliver Israel from their enemies. Okay, So these leaders had more flaws than Joshua, more than Moses. And their leadership failed so many at so many points, and you might recognize the name Samson, just to throw that out there. He was a judge, okay? But some more than others were sinful, and so we see this period in Israel's life where they sin and disobey God and break covenant with God. God punishes them. Their enemies overtake them. In their being oppressed and hurt by their enemies, they cry out to God in repentance, and then God brings salvation through a judge and restoration through a judge. They sin, God brings punishment. They repent, God saves. They sin, God brings judgment. They repent, and God saves. And this just happens over and over and over and over again, reinforcing the fact that God keeps his word according to the Mosaic Covenant. You're faithful to me, I'll bless you. If not, I'll kick you out of your land, and I'll bring judgment upon you. Are you with me so far? Okay. So, again, reminding us that in covenant with God is good, outside of covenant with God is bad. After this period, then we are brought to the period of the kings, okay? And that's a huge part in scripture as well. Um, the, probably, I would say the most famous king in the Old Testament is King David, because then God brings in another promise. And to David, he says, man, you're, David, you're going to have a descendant, and I promise you, you're going to have a descendant that sits on your throne forever and ever, referring, we now know, to Jesus Christ. So everything is all pointing towards this Messiah rescuer, deliverer, king man that is coming in to this world. David's uh, son takes over the throne eventually. He's the one who builds the temple, the first physical tabernacle, if you will. It's a temple. 
Then his grandson takes over the throne. David's grandson fails in leadership big time. And the 12 tribes of Israel, remember the 12 sons of Israel, 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel divide and the kingdom is split. There's a 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. The top part is called Israel. They call the bottom part Judah, okay? So you got 10 tribes and two tribes. The northern kingdom, all they have is bad kings. Nobody leading anybody to love God and to worship God rightly. The southern kingdom has a roller coaster ride of good and bad kings, up and down, up and down, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, so on and so forth. God eventually has enough of the northern kingdom's garbage and rebellion. And so he allows the Assyrian Empire to annihilate them completely. They're gone. They're gone. All that remains is the remnant of the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah, which is where David is from. Judah, where Jesus is from. Jesus' ancestor, right? So we see God persevering the story of salvation. That even though his people are rebellious, he's still going to bring about the Savior through his desired outcome. Eventually, though, the southern kingdom sin is so bad. This is going to bring us up to Haggai. Their sin is so bad that God allows the Babylonian Empire, who crushed the Assyrians. The Babylonians are now the world empire, power, uh, uh, world, most powerful world empire. God allows the Babylonians to overtake the southern kingdom. Jerusalem is sacked. The temple is destroyed. The Ark of the Covenant is carried off. No one knows where it is. Capital gone. And the Israelites are carried off into captivity for 70 years. 70 years of punishment for their having violated the covenant that God made way back in the wilderness with Moses. Okay? Well, after the 70-year period, God allows them to return to their land. They're, they're deported back to their land because Babylonians are no longer in power. The Persians are. And the Persian king, the first Persian king that we read about in Scripture, I should say, uh, Cyrus made a decree that they could return to their land. And so this is what we see happening. Okay? God allows them to return to their land. They're in a period of grace. They're in a period of restoration. They're in a period of being able to recommune with God properly and to restore that life and culture and Mosaic covenant and live according to that to honor God. They're, they're getting to go back to their land to restore all this. And this return to the promised land, it happens in three stages. The events of Haggai happen in the first stage of their return to Jerusalem. So that's where we're at in the big picture of Scripture. The first days of the Jews returning to Jerusalem starts in 538 B.C. under the leadership of the governor Zerubbabel, the guy that we just read about in the first couple verses of Haggai. He's the governor. Remember that there is no king at this point in Israel. And so we have to be thinking from a salvation standpoint, how is God going to bring about the king into the world, the king of the Jews, Jesus, David's a long-awaited descendant? If there's no king... And where's all the gospel pictures of the sacrifices and the priesthood? And man, this whole thing is just falling apart. Like, what is God going to do to put back together the story of salvation so that God is faithful in keeping his word to all of humanity? Like, that's how we should be looking at it from that big picture point of view. Haggai takes place in 520 B.C., now, there's some dates that you want to remember, and I put them up on the screen right now, or John put them up, I didn't. But uh, the local situation, again, in 539 B.C., the Persians uh, overthrew the Babylonians as the world power, and now they are in charge. In 538, King Cyrus of Persia decrees that the Jews are allowed to return to their homeland after their captivity in Babylon. The governor of Judah, who is Zerubbabel, led about 50,000 Jews back to the homeland, and a couple years later, they actually begin to start rebuilding the temple. Now, there was some opposition against the Jews, and that caused the construction of the temple to be stalled. Sixteen years later, God uses Haggai to reach or to preach to the leaders and the people of Israel, what remains of them, okay, to preach to them in order to set their heart and their priority straight because they are not focusing on kingdom work anymore. And so in a nutshell, this is what the two little chapters of this small writing are about. So that's the deal. The world and Israel have been waiting for the Messiah to come and fix this sin-torn world and to usher in a new creation. 
But there's no king in Israel. There's no rebuilt temple, no priesthood uh, in order for them to act in ways to launch the gospel forward. So the people are in spiritual stupor after being out of their homeland for 70 years. There's a lot of work and rebuilding of their society and culture that has to take place. While they're glad to be heading home, the work they have to do won't be done without a struggle or frustration or opposition. Now, knowing this big idea of the minor prophet, we have to really stop and ask ourselves some important questions. Why is God so concerned with having the temple rebuilt? The temple was often called the house of the Lord. It's where the Lord dwelt among the Jews. And again, it foreshadows a time when God will indwell his people and live with them forever in the new creation. It portrays eternal and spiritual realities in earthly pictures. We know that God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a special room inside the temple, inside, prior to that, inside the tabernacle. And it was there in the special room that God separated himself from the rest of Israel. He warded himself off and did not allow people access into his presence. Why was he separated from everyone else? Why were the people separated from God? The answer is simple, because of sin. Because of sin. Just like we are all separated from God at birth and cannot enter into God's presence. Ever since Adam sinned, Everyone was kicked out of the presence of God, out of the Garden of Eden. Okay? This is how we unify the entire story of Scripture. We're all separated from God. Yet this real separation we see is in Israel as well. Okay? This real separation, though, from God, it could be bridged. It could be eliminated. The separation could be fixed through a real priestly office through a real sacrificial work by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus, being the priest, mediates between us and God. Jesus, being the sacrifice, offers himself up in perfection to God because we can't bring perfection to God because we're sinners, and he himself offers his life as the death substitute as well because we deserve to die for our sin. And so that's how this bridge between us and God is... is um, it comes together. This chasm is bridged together, okay? And the temple was where all of this was pictured and lived out year after year, decade after decade, century after century, until Jesus would finally come and be the reality that it all portrayed. You see, God, ever since creation, God has always desired to live amongst his people, among a sinless and holy people that look like him, right? That's the story of creation in the beginning. And if you were here when I was preaching through Malachi a couple weeks ago. I went through from creation into the tent of meeting and the tabernacle and the, the first temple. And then I talked about the spiritual temple that's being built now amongst God's people and how God, God inhabited all of those and visited all of those and his presence was there. But in Malachi, the second temple, while it's rebuilt, what did I say? God hadn't visited it yet, right? You, you guys remember that? And Malachi foresees a time when there's a messenger coming to prepare the way for Jesus who will visit, God will visit his second temple. And we saw that he did, okay? And so, again, this, this all portrays that God wants to dwell amongst his people, but there, there has to be a fixing of the situation, our condition, in order to be with God in his presence. And so, from Genesis, we see God wanting to live with humanity all the way to the end of Revelation, which Steve preached through, that shows God is in the business of restoring creation and humanity uh, through Christ so that we can dwell with him forever. Sin has ruined that. And so God's plan was always to have his son be the prophet, the, the final prophet, the true priest, and the ultimate Passover lamb that would cause, cause God's judgment to pass by us so that mercy and grace could be extended to us. And when God extends mercy and grace to us, now we each become a living stone so that we are being built up into a holy temple where God indwells us with Christ being the cornerstone. So if you want to know why God wants this temple rebuilt, why it matters to him so much, it's to honor his name in holiness, to show how sinners can be reconciled, and to show that God wants to dwell with his holy, pure people. God wants to dwell with us, okay? 
are all wise, all powerful, everywhere present, holy God wants to dwell with his holy people in loving relationship. And the work that is done in the temple shows how this is accomplished through the coming Christ. And so once again, we see that all scripture pertains to Christ, even in a two-chapter minor prophet of Haggai. So as we look at this tiny prophet, please keep this lens in mind, this filter in mind, so that you can see the heart of God in the text and really see how it all pertains to God, to us, to Christ, and how we can properly apply this, apply this to our lives. You need to see that God loves his creation, that he desires to save some people for his glory and for our joy in him. And Haggai is not a book that is bent on crushing our dreams so that God can have his way. Rather, it's a prophetic message that tells us that God has something greater in store than for our puny dreams to be fulfilled and our homes to be built with our hands. God has something so much greater in store than anything we could ever conjure up for our own kingdom. It's his kingdom that is amazing. There's something greater to come for those of us that are saved. And so the first thing we see in our text this morning and I want you to see that when your priorities are out of line and not in lines with God's, that God will speak to you through another person. Okay, I'm going to clarify what I mean by that. That God speaks to you through another when your priorities are out of balance and not in tune with him. Okay, Haggai 1, look at verse 1 again. It says, in the second year of King Darius, this is the next Persian king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Okay, So Haggai's message came to him in the second year of Darius' reign. The date given corresponds to August 29th, 520 B.C. Okay? But I want you to notice that the word of the Lord came through who? This guy with a weird name. Okay, At least weird to us. Haggai. Okay. The word of the Lord came through Haggai. And who was it for? Very important, you get it. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David, but he was only a governor of Judah, not the king. The prophet Jeremiah had put a curse on Zerubbabel's grandfather, Jeconiah, and this curse extended to his lineage. And the curse was basically that no one from uh, that lineage could sit on David's throne. Okay, Interestingly enough, Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, he descends from this lineage, which creates some interesting questions about Jesus being king. If he descended from this, how is he king and so forth if he wasn't supposed to have a king from this lineage? We may get into that in a later sermon, but for now, we'll create a little bit of suspense, okay? So this prophecy is who? From God, through Haggai, to Zerubbabel, to Joshua the high priest. Now, this is not the same Joshua as Moses' right-hand man, the one who fought the battle of Jericho and started to take over the promised land. Not that guy. But these two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua, they are basically the leaders of Judah and they are receiving a message from God through the prophet Haggai. From God through the prophet. Emphasizing my point that when God speaks to his people, he speaks through another. Not directly to you, not directly to me. Okay? I don't know if you ever noticed that in scripture, that God never speaks to the general population. Did you ever notice that? He doesn't ever just come out and talk to the general population. Okay? He speaks through another. God never spoke directly to the world, to Israel, or even to the church. To be certain, he did speak to these groups, but not directly, not without a mediator. In the Old Testament, it was always indirectly through a prophet. In the New Testament, it was through Christ and through his apostles. It's always always mediated. I'm not sure if you've ever considered that. Always, always, always. Hebrews 1 tells us this. It says in verse 1, it says not that, that long ago God spoke to the fathers directly. No, it, it doesn't say that. I just inserted that in there. He spoke to the fathers by the prophets. He spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. And these last days he has spoken to us by his son. And then Jesus commissioned his apostles to speak on his behalf. But it's always through another. Kind of makes you wonder about all the people that say God told me. God, God spoke to me. It makes me wonder. Aside from that, did you ever consider why God speaks through spokesmen or mouthpieces? 
Okay? Well, it goes back to Genesis, doesn't it? God used to, used to speak directly to mankind until sin came in. And ever since then, mankind has been separated from God, and he has chosen to address the general population through mediators or through prophets or through spokespeople. Those people verified that they were of God when God did miracles through them. And they all pointed to Jesus. All these prophets pointed to Jesus, who is the prophet of all prophets, who was the end all when it came to prophets. And so it should come as no surprise to us that if God wants to address Judah and her leaders, then God would summon a prophet to speak on his behalf. It should also come as no surprise that if God wants to speak to us, then he speaks to us through the same prophets, apostles, and through his son. Nothing has changed for the world. This is very important to get so that we are not deceived by any old message that someone claims to bring from God. It's very important that you understand that what we do in the church follows the same pattern as the rest of Scripture. Your pastors and your elders are not up here declaring private messages that they have heard from God. Right, Steve? Right? I hope not. All right. They're simply doing what we see in Haggai. Okay? The prophet speaks to the leaders from God. He hears the message from God, and he speaks to the leaders and the people, and then the leaders help the people do what God has said to do through the prophet. That's what we see in the text, right? Not God addressing them directly, but through the prophet. The same is true of the pastors and the, and the elders in the New Testament. They listened to the apostles who got the message from God. And they received, uh, the apostles who received direct revelation from God, and they gave it to those leaders, and then those pastors or elders received the word and helped the people to know God and to obey God as they were told things through the apostles by God. I tell you this so that you'll be mindful of those eloquent-sounding wolves that like to tilt their head and be like, hang on a second. I, I think I'm getting a message from God. Hang on. Hang. It's coming in a little staticky. Wait. Yes. Wait. No. I think I got it. I think I got it. Wait, wait, wait. There are people that do that. Let me tell you that God doesn't ever mumble. God's signal is never staticky or unclear or indecipherable. When God speaks, no one ever said, can you repeat that again, Lord? I, because when God speaks, he speaks clearly. Okay, And that's what he did through these prophets. He spoke through them. Anybody else, I dare say, is a scam artist okay, or deceived at worst. So be mindful of that. It matters for us because in Christianity, there are many people waiting for signs, they're waiting for wonders, they're waiting for special revelations from God to confirm things in their lives, and they're waiting for God to speak to them on particular matters of their lives. Let me, see, let me tell you that God has given you wisdom to make godly decisions. But God has spoken, and the reason God has spoken is to help us see that we are sinners in need of salvation, and he shows us how all this is made possible through Jesus Christ. And that's what the entire word of God is about, and how we can live for God and honor him. Okay? But God is not in the business of just you giving special, you getting special revelation so you know which college to send your kid to, okay? Or whether you should have spaghetti for tonight, uh, dinner tonight or hamburgers. His revelation is there for salvific purposes, okay? God-glorifying purposes, and we have that sum total in Scripture. We don't need anything else. If you want to hear God speak to you, I do then you simply need to open the scripture and read what he has said through the prophets, apostles, and his son. If you want God to speak to you, then you need to consistently be under the leadership of those who are teaching you what the prophets and apostles have said and what the Son of God has said, which means that you need to consistently meet together as a body, as a group of people. God is not going to speak to you directly without a mediator or a spokesperson. One day, we will, we will commune with God directly face to face. Until then... It's, his word is mediated through the apostles and prophets and teachers of Scripture. He doesn't do that for us elders, right? He speaks to us as well through another, and that's what we're preaching to you tonight. While he doesn't speak directly to you or me, we have the guarantee that he does personally speak to us. Let me make that clear. He doesn't speak to us directly, but he does speak to us personally through another. He is speaking to us. He does speak to us, but it is mediated, okay? 
And hopefully that doesn't come as a surprise as a surprise to you, but there is a difference, okay? It is personal, it matters, it is relative, it's one that's very intimate, and it it means a lot and it's life-changing, and it is near, it is a close speaking, it is not a distant speaking, but it is mediated through another. Okay? So, secondly, we see this. When God speaks to you, when your priorities are out of line, as we're going to see here with the Israelites, when he does speak, not only does he speak through another, but he speaks about very real issues in our lives. Okay? Look at what happens here. He asks, God asks him to consider his ways versus their ways. And he's doing the same with us. He's asking you to consider his ways versus your ways. And in doing so, he addresses their physical activity. When God's speaking to the Israelites, he's addressing their physical activity as an indicator of their spiritual dryness. He's speaking directly about their physical activity as, as it indicates to him their spiritual dryness. Look at verse 2. The Lord of angel armies says this, These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? If you've lived in the high desert long enough, then you've experienced this, right? You've driven by a construction project, whether it be a home or a shopping center, and this project was once started, and it just has stayed there incomplete for years, right? We, we see that all throughout our high desert. And you wonder, I wonder whatever happened to that hospital that they were supposed to build. And I wonder whatever happened to that, uh, that shopping center that was supposed to go up. Man, it just looks horrible, horribly vacated. There's, I, I see an empty, uh, down on Arrowhead, there's a building that stands up there with just wood uh, beams pressed up against it that hold the walls up. And it's been like that for eight years. I don't know if it's supposed to be a church or another building, but it's just been like that forever. Um, I wonder why it stopped. Maybe you've wondered the same thing. Well, throw yourselves back into the 6th century BC. Some 50,000 Jews have returned to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives, to rebuild covenant life, and to rebuild the temple. Construction had started on the temple. We read that from other books, like Ezra and Nehemiah. Right? Construction had started. Well, Nehemiah's about the wall, but we see that construction had started. Opposition had arisen. Bullies came along, taunting them and harassing the Israelites. And they gave up. They gave up building. After 16 years later now of no construction, people are walking by wondering, whatever happened to the temple project that was started so long ago? Did funds dry up? Did permits expire? Did the dream implode? I wonder what happened. They certainly, in my opinion, needed to watch the movie The Field of Dreams because everyone knows if, if you build it, what? He will come, right? And honestly... That's all that was being waited for in order for the Lord to come visit the temple. It had to be rebuilt in order for him to come, all right? But nothing's happening. Truly, God had visited his people in special ways. Whenever, again, whenever we see the tabernacle or the temple being inaugurated or blessed, if you recall, again, I detailed that a while ago in Malachi, okay? But the problem here in Malachi is that there's no further progress being made in rebuilding the temple, the, the problem was not really a financial one. The problem wasn't one of red tape. The problem was a, a spiritual one in its nature. It was sinful hearts that were the problem. And so God addressed their physical activity as a way to open up their eyes to their spiritual blind, uh, dryness and show them their condition. What does the Lord say about these people? And what is going on in their heads and in their hearts? What is it that he just pulls out in the open for them to see? He says, they are saying that it is not yet time to rebuild the temple. Not time. How in the world did they arrive at that conclusion that God's priorities could be put on hold? How is it that they came about that, that determination that it's not time? And on top of that, there's certainly no goals being stated here about any timeline about when they would resume construction. The time is not now. Well, when? We haven't decided that either. It's just not now. Remember how Pastor Steve talked Sunday when he was preaching about intentionality and spreading the gospel? Intentionality and doing kingdom work. He talked about that. That was, that was very convicting and great at spurring us on towards making sure that we are deliberate in doing what God has called us to do, that it doesn't happen by accident. We needed to teleport Pastor Steve through a wormhole back to 520 B.C. and say, brother, can you help Zerubbabel and Joshua? Take the message you have from Romans. They surely could have benefited from it. 
right? There's no intentionality for kingdom work going on here. It's just that it's not time. We'll get to it when we get to it, is the attitude. All the while, the Lord is looking at them and seeing that they, that they certainly have plenty of time on their hands and energy to make sure that their own houses were built and looking good. All the cabinets in my kitchen look great. Have you seen my new countertops? You should check out the tile in my bathroom. It, it heats up. It's warm. All right? I got a new cabana in the back, and I'm getting landscaping in the front. And when is the house of the Lord going to be rebuilt? Oh, it's not time yet. Do you see how insulting this is to God and his glory? It, it's heart-wrenching. Their houses are covered with beautiful cedar panels, while the temple where God is supposed to live with them is trashed because of their sin a few generations ago. They had all the time on their own They had all the time they needed for their own kingdom, but not God's. The temple was in ruins. Why was it in ruins? Because of their former national sin and breaking covenant with God. The temple ruins should have served, as they walked by that, that should serve as a daily reminder of their ancestors' sin and what would become of them if they did not stay in covenant with God. That's what those ruins should have reminded them. If we forsake God, that could be us again too. God bringing punishment upon our nation. Ruining, uh, uh, ruin certainly would come again. And the fact that they are in their homeland should remind them that they're in the middle of God's grace. They're in a period of grace where they are free from uh, Babylonian oppression and slavery and being exiled out of their land. Okay? The Persians have allowed them to go back to their homeland. They're able to experience God's grace, and yet here they are growing slack in their love and their commitment to God. The sacrificial and worship system God set up for them according to the Mosaic Covenant can't can't go on without the temple. And so think about it. They're in a period of pitiful worship, maybe no worship at all or minimal at best. They, like many of us, take spiritual priorities and then we and assign vague timelines to them when we will get back to what's important. How can any of us act like that when we've been shown such an immense grace to God, right? Well, I'll get back to church soon and fellowshipping with the family of God, and I'll start reading my Bible eventually, and I'll get back to praying and being in connection with God and his people. And You know, I'm going to one day serve, just not now. I'll grow closer to God's family eventually, when the time is right, when I'm less tired, when I get all my stuff done, when I retire, when I am definitely less busy because Lord knows everything else I have in my life is way more important than doing kingdom work. And sometimes there are people that take that attitude. I'm not saying that about you directly. I'm just saying that this, this is the habit of God's people. Over time, these things happen. We see it all throughout Israel's history, and this is the course of church history too. In church life, individual church history. We shouldn't take the attitude that, you know, God knows in his infinite wisdom that I got bright, better priorities than what he's determined for my life. He knows I'm, I'm doing right. Now let me say something about this topic of rebuilding the temple. Because when I was younger, I heard this text abused. I heard this text improperly applied to the lives of God's people, Okay. I've heard some people use this passage to guilt people into giving money. Guilt people into giving money to give to the church so that bigger and newer buildings can be erected so as to raise funds uh, to upgrade the premises. I don't know how many S's I put on premises, but it felt like one too many when I said that. This passage is not about a building project for the church. It was for them, not for us. Okay. Very important that you get that. This isn't a call to get church building funds up so that we can get the building up and looking good. Was it a call for them to get the temple building up and looking good? Yes, for reasons I've already stated. It's all had to do with the gospel work of proclaiming Christ through sacrifice and through priesthood and helping people to see God's holiness and how it is that we can enter into his presence and how we can joyfully and lovingly worship God through gift offerings and things like that. That's all that that portrayed as God dwelt among his people. 
But this passage should not be used, and it's a gross abuse of it, to use it to raise funds so that new construction projects can be started by the church. Rather, it's a word from God designed to reorient our spiritual priorities around Christ and Christ-centered things and agendas. Do you see the difference in application? Okay. There still is an application, but it is not about buildings. For them, yes. For us, no. For a moment, I would just ask that you would take inventory of your life, all that you do. Look at what you do on a regular basis. What do your daily activities consist of? Could it be said that you're much like Judah, that your spiritual priorities are out of whack, all the while uh, you're you're fulfilling your physical and um, dreams that you desire for you and your family while you neglect kingdom work? Because the truth of the matter is that there are certainly times where, where all of us have done this at some point. Maybe for a week, maybe a month, maybe a year, I don't know. Maybe just for a particular day, we just get misaligned in what we do. Okay, So it's important that we pay attention to what's going on in our lives, that we examine them and then always hold them up against God's word. So God asked Judah this question, and he's really not expecting any response. As we continue through the text, we'll see that we are changing gears here a little bit. But this conversation is basically going to be one-sided, one way. The only, the only thing that needs to be done is that people need to respond. They're not there to argue back to God. That's really the only pop- appropriate response to any time God speaks, is just humble obedience and submission to God's will. So we also see this, that God doesn't just um, ask them to, uh, he, he goes on to ask them to consider their ways, okay? To consider their ways. In verse 5 we see this, Okay? says, now the Lord of angel army says this, think carefully about your ways. You have planted much, you've harvested little, you never, uh, you eat but never have enough to be satisfied, you drink but never have enough to be happy, you put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages in a bag with a hole in it. Now initially, all seems from the Jews' perspective that everything is going good. Our houses look great. They live in really well-built homes. And the Lord pushes them further to look past their fancy houses. Stop looking at what's going on for a moment, he tells them, and consider that you are failing in life. They had, they had not us, but they had natural indicators and financial indicators that would let them know that if God was pleased with them or not. That was all part of his covenant. Okay, When they broke covenant with God, all this would go bad. When they kept covenant... All would go well, and so there was financial and physical indicators that they were uh, living in covenant with God. Those indicators, again, had to do with harvest and money and children and flocks. God promised a bountiful land when they kept covenant with him, and he promised the opposite, kicked out of the land and land being destroyed when they turned from him, that they would have hardship and poverty. For us, this doesn't apply in the same sense because we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, We're not under the Old Testament. If your bank account is empty and you're struggling to make ends meet, that is not necessarily an indicator that God is displeased with you. He may or may not be. He may or may not be disciplining you. Your financials don't necessarily indicate that. Now, if you're stealing from your employer and you get fired and now you're struggling to make ends meet, you can be certain that you're being disciplined by God. Okay, But it's not always the case. God tells us through Haggai that they planted much and harvested little. They had little to eat. They had little to drink, little to wear, and uh, they earned little. Right? They put much effort in only to have little results. It's like having holes in your pocket and you put your money in it. Where did it go? It just fell out. God wants them to stop being busy with their life on things that are temporal and focus on the eternal and consider why their efforts produce so little. What could be wrong? Consider your ways, Judah. Consider what you're doing in your life. Stop and think. Why do you think things are going wrong? What do you know of my word that could help you see what's really happening? The frustrating results that they experienced were not simply because of bad economic conditions as if they were experiencing a recession or inflation. The results were because of the hand of God. They should have known this based on God's word and based on the the Mosaic Covenant. In case they forgot, he makes it plain to them. He tells them, I did it. God's not embarrassed. He's not hiding. I did. I did this to you. God will shortly say this. Because of your sin, I did it. In church, for a moment, consider 
that while God does not judge us, he disciplines us. It's hard to know if our life circumstances are a result of sin. Again, if you steal and get fired from your job and you can't provide, that's God's discipline. But if you get a flat tire while driving down the road, that's not necessarily God's discipline. That's just living in a fallen world, my friend. There are nails everywhere, okay? Let me tell you that the majority of God's discipline comes through God's word in our life. He rebukes and corrects what is wrong in our life. He speaks to us by the prophets and his son and apostles, and he calls us to straighten out. That's primarily God's corrective discipline. And let us be certain that God's discipline often comes through other church members calling us out of our sin as they witness it. God dwelling in them, using them as instruments of sanctification for us. That's how God has designed discipline in some measure. And if you're sinning and a brother or sister calls you out on it by using God's word to show your error, you really ought to listen. You really ought to take note of God's activity in your life. To neglect the, the, to neglect the discipline of God in your life is dangerous, and it can lead to death, spiritual death. For many people, when God comes correcting them and disciplining them, they begin to blame others. They begin to attack they begin to become critical of others instead of just stopping and taking inventory of their own hearts and lives. Stop and think. If, if many people are addressing you about a, a sin, maybe you, you got to wake up and take note of it. Okay? The pastors, we've seen that this week. I can tell you for a fact that when you confront us pastors, because there have been people who have confronted me about sin. And it's like devastating. Man, I feel like I let people down. Like I dishonored God. I know Steve feels the same way Brian does. But you're our brothers and sisters. When you call us out on sin, it's our obligation before God to repent of that sin and stop it. And we try to set that example for you. And you need to follow that example. We are not above reproach or above being rebuked, I should say. We're to be above reproach as elders, but we're not, we're not above being corrected, okay? If you can't take correction and loving discipline, you know what that means? It means you don't like hearing from God. You don't want God talking to you. Because God's in the business of saving people from sin and then removing sin from people. And so if someone has called you out on sin, it's because God loves you and he loves his glory and he's trying to purify you. So repent, okay? God is always in, the, in that business. That's what part of salvation is, rescuing us from Judgment of hell and rescuing us from evil deeds now and then one day fixing us in the eternal state so that we never sin again. We all need it. We all should expect it. We all need to welcome correction in our lives. It could be invalid at times. Sometimes people see things wrong, but we must at least stop and consider that it, it might be valid. And if it is, then we must repent and follow the Lord afresh. And then lastly, we see that God asks them to consider their ways in life. All right? Uh, consider their ways in light. I misprinted that. God asked them to consider their ways in light of their sin and his discipline. Verse 7 says this. The Lord of armies says this. Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills and bring down lumber and build the house, and I will be pleased with it and glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the field and in the hills, on the grain, new wine, fresh oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and animal, and all that your hands produce. So the first thing God does in this next several verses is he tells him how it is that he can be pleased with them and glorify him. In fact, we have much of the same sort of instructions in the New Testament letters while we're while we are told not to rebuild the, the physical temple, we are told how to order our lives in such a way that God is honored and glorified. For them, they needed to go out and cut down some trees and rebuild the temple. Then he will be pleased and glorified. And then God, after that, he, he exposes himself as the destroyer of their crops. They expected much and harvested little. Why? Because God ruined it. God ruined it. And the question that it must have popped up in their minds was, why would God ruin our efforts or his people? And God anticipated this and answered the question before they were able to ask it. He says, because my house lies in ruins. My house lies in ruins. Well, each of you, your house looks pretty darn sweet. I did this to get your attention. All right? 
Scripture tells us that he, he withheld rain from the skies. They put water for the, the hills. And the animals, the animals have to drink, and so do the people. It was because of the Israelites' sin. That's, what they, that's why they couldn't produce much grain or wine or oil or anything else on the ground. All their efforts amounted to little because God was displeased with them because they are breaking covenant with him and not living in covenant. They didn't care about spiritual priorities. They didn't care about the temple being rebuilt 